Welcome to the podcast. My name is Father Peter. At first, I thought you were just going to give a straight opening. And then you turned it melodic. And I felt right at home all of a sudden. Yeah, dude, this is the thing. Is it's always messed up because I know that there's some sort of melody playing over us because you you edit it in afterwards. Yeah, I do. And so, <laughs> Would so. it be more helpful if I played it? I don't it's know. fine. I don't feel like you ever really conflict with it. I'm sure all our listeners might have Disagree. different opinions <laughs> <Yeah>. on that. <laughs> but I always can live with it. Well, um, that's uh, Dr. Scott Powell, the Director of Scriptural Theology at St. Thomas Aquinas Catholic Center in the University of Colorado Boulder. Yep. And you are Father Peter Musset, who is the uh, Director of Campus Ministry at the St. Thomas Aquinas Catholic Center and the Pastor of All Things Holy. That, dude, Not all things. Wow, <laughs> dude, this is the thing. You're, you're like the head Presbyterian for the diocese, right? Is that what you're <laughs> head Presbyterian, dude. This is the thing. Is Presbyteral. I, I'm the director of all the pastor of all things holy because they don't give me pastoring of anything else because it's too hard. So you just get all the holy things. I just get all the holy things. They're like, <laughs> hey, they're already kind of like hanging out. Just let them do their thing. Wouldn't that be nice if you just got to deal with the holy oh, things man. and not all the rest of the Dude, stuff that you get to deal I with? I think I think that uh, that would be really sweet. I'm just meeting with the holy people. Just I'm That's just it. trapped in land of the holy people, <laughs> which is not where we are here on the 29th Sunday in ordinary time. No, it's not where the readings are either. That's right. There's is that lots, what you meant? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's uh, like. We being the holy people we of God, holy people engaging God. with the Jesus. I mean, like if you think about it, Jesus had to deal with lots of unholy people. That's like yeah, his almost whole exclusively. Gig. <laughs> almost ex- be, why? Because, Except for his mom. Yep. The physician goes to the one who needs healing. Right. The right. sick do not need a physician. No. No, they don't. And you know but what? We this, could use them once in a while. So too. this uh, this is the thing is <laughs> this this podcast is sick. Oh, oh, nice. I see what you did there. Yeah, dude. Well, speaking of sick, I want to give a couple of shout outs. <laughs> That's not a good segue. There's that no, was horrible. Uh, I, there's not, yeah, there's no, there's no segues there. Um, I'm trying to find this one. Oh, oh, everything's fine. I've got all my electrical devices in front of me. The first shout out, because I have that one in front of me, um, I want to give a shout out to Alyssa Sorensen. Alyssa Sorensen, Father Peter, left us some chocolates not too long Dude, ago. Dude, those were some delicious chocolates. Delicious. She's from Seattle. Yeah, she I left remember us them. Chocolates. Um, Michael Tan's friend. Yeah, it was kind of cool. I didn't realize that until last night. So shout out to Mike Tan and to Alyssa Sorensen and her friend Claire Beveridge, who we've actually shouted out on this podcast in the past. Dude, wow. Beveridge, as in. To drink a beverage. To drink a beverage, you we know. We also got to give a shout out to Esther Wagner, whose birthday is coming up next week. Um, and her uh, her daughter, Tessie Wagner, says she dares to say that she is our number one fan, who I've been dying to meet, our number one fan. So that's exciting. Apparently, Tessie and her sister got their mom into the podcast last year, and she decided that we were so good that it was worth hearing every single episode. So she says that every Whoa. Thursday she listens to the new one, and every other day of the week she listens to the old ones. Oh, which, which, my. That's a little bit too much Scott and Father Peter for my, <laughs> my money. but Dude, I mean, this is the thing. is the, I try to podcast only once a week with Scott because yeah. past if that, that. If that. If that. <laughs> past that, dude, I'm like, I'm, dude, I need more Red Bull than it's acceptable. I know. Things get a little real. Yeah. So, Well, gosh, you guys, thanks for the love. Yeah, it, it, lots it, of love. 
It really, uh, it warms us here in this beautiful basement where we podcast. <laughs> it and, is beautiful. You know, my my fish is very happy right now. And yeah, it's we're just down to one? Behind you. Yeah, we're just down to one, man. Uh, do you still have the shrimp? Shrimp, dude. Jacques is still Good. living. Okay, so there's Pe- still life in Peppermint there. Jacques. So our first reading is from Isaiah 45, 1, 4, and 6. Okay, and our second, our, mm, did you read the intervening verses? Four through six. One, what about two and three? No, I did not read the two or three. Well, we'll get there. I didn't either. No, I did. Of course I did. I always do. Uh, Responsorial Psalm is Psalm 96, verses 1, 3, 4 to 5, 7 through 8, and 9 through 10. And the responsorical is 7B. 7B. Or not 7B. Our second reading is 1 Thessalonians. First one, 25B. Thank you. (laughs) And our gospel. Oh my goodness, our gospel is coming from Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 21. Yeah, Isaiah. um, Okay. (laughs) I I just pause because the truth is is that I know that I need the context of this. To understand. Well, here, one one thing I have to say that's a little frustrating. do you, know this, the, do you know the frustration is a derivative of the passion of anger, which oftentimes is, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas would say, a, res, a, a response to a perceived injustice. Well, I think this is a perceived injustice. Then this is the proper response that I'm having. Right. There is uh, a theory. There's a very popular theory within biblical scholarship. We've So we're in the book of Isaiah. We've talked about Isaiah a million times. Scholars love to break Isaiah into three parts. So they talk about Isaiah, like the actual Isaiah who wrote Isaiah. And then but Deutero then there's Isaiah. Isaiah, the second Isaiah, and somebody else obviously wrote that. And then there's even Trito Isaiah, the third part of Isaiah, and somebody else wrote that. Um, one of the major reasons, one of the impetuses, how do you pluralize the word impetus? Impeti? <laughs> Oh, no. Impetigo. Impis? <laughs> One of the reasons that this theory came about uh, is actually from this passage. And it talks about a guy named Cyrus the Persian or Cyrus the Great. Um, and there's this case. So, so here's where we are in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, Isaiah, Isaiah remember, is doing a couple Isaiah. of things. He's warning the people of Israel to turn away from their sins. Turn away from your sins! <laughs> He's... Shocking. <laughs> it was like a Mr. T. <laughs> a pity to fool. A pity to fool. Who doesn't turn away from their sins. Oh, you really <laughs> derailed me there, man. Uh, he's warning the people, if, he, if you don't <laughs> turn away from your sins. Turn away from your sins! <laughs> that there's going to be consequences. There's going to be uh, punishment. So they're, they're witnessing the Assyrians. So Isaiah is literally witnessing the Assyrians destroy the northern empire. And they're witnessing the Assyrians then come into the south and begin to batter down Jerusalem. God saves them a number of times. But it's looking forward to the fact that there is going to be a nation called Babylon who will come in and essentially finish the job that Assyria started. You will be punished. There will be exile. There will be all these terrible things. But then Isaiah continues to look forward into the future past the punishment, past the exile, to the moment that God will redeem us and restore us. And so we always talk about how we split Isaiah into two parts, the bad news and the good news, the book Mm of woe and the book of consolation, right, or comfort. You know, we're in the book of consolation, We're in the which starts in chapter 40. I thought it starts in 52, man. No, 40. 40? Yeah, that, where 40? it says comfort, comfort uh, my, my people, people Israel. Yeah, yeah, Hence dude. the term, the book of comfort. <laughs> <laughs> which technically gets us into Deutero-Isaiah? 
Yeah, I think so. But but again, to get to the point, one of the reasons people think that Isaiah could not have written this yeah. is that there's this future prophecy that there's going to be a guy named Cyrus who's going to be a sort of savior for the people of Israel. And people say, well, wait a second. Cyrus hasn't come to power yet by the time that he's writing this book. So how could he possibly have known that there would be this person named Cyrus who would do all of these things? There's no such thing as prophecy or the miraculous or people actually being shown God's plan. So surely someone... From the time of Cyrus or afterwards, must have gone back in and rewritten this. They were, right? probably, yeah, they were probably taking a seminar, a, a Jesus seminar. <laughs> <laughs> Cyrus are. Cyrus I thought you were going to try to do a play on the words of Cyrus. But here's the thing. So what it actually says here in the first part of uh, chapter 45, thus says the Lord to his what? Anointed. It says anointed, but do you know what the word is in, in Hebrew? King. No. Kings are anointed, but it doesn't mean king. Messiah. Yeah, Messiah. So it literally says, thus says the Lord to his Messiah, Cyrus. This okay. guy named Cyrus, who was the king of the Persian Empire, is going to be called a Messiah. Why? Well, first of all, a little bit to know about Cyrus. Have you heard of the Cyrus Cylinder? This is a fascinating uh, piece of archaeological archaeology. No, there's a thing called this. You should look at you'd be fat. You're the kind of person that would get into this. The Cyrus Cylinder. It's this um it's literally a cylinder <laughs> that they discovered. It's in the British Museum, I think. But it basically dates from the time of King Cyrus, and it is this documentation from late Babylon of exactly what Cyrus, the king of Persia, did. And what it does, the reason it's so important for our sake is that this piece of archaeological evidence corroborates the whole biblical story. And goes back, and everyone who was like, no, the Bible doesn't know what it's talking about, then they discovered this piece of archaeology, and they said, oh... Well, I guess that is actually what happened. Maybe the Bible was right. <laughs> Basically, what it records is that um, the Persians defeat the Babylonians. Remember the Babylonians? Yeah, there it is. Dude, it's literally a cylinder. It looks like cuneiform or something. It's, it's Babylonian script, which is similar to cuneiform um, linguistically. But what, it, uh, what, what happened was so the Babylonians, who were the ones who took Israel into exile, right? Off into slavery, destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem. They're eventually defeated by the Persian Empire, right? Mm -hmm. And the first king of the Persian Empire as such is this guy named Cyrus. And what Cyrus does, and this is written in the Cyrus Cylinder, Cyrus wants to be a bit more of a benevolent king than uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the rest of the, the Babylonians were. And he says, okay, well, the Babylonians took all these peoples and these nations, they wiped out their cities, they destroyed their temples, and they put them into slave labor. I'm going to set them free because I actually want a kingdom in which my people respect me and don't just fear me, which right. is a good leadership technique. And so he says, <laughs> I'm going to release all of you from your yeah. forced labor and I'm going to send you back to where you come from. And what he actually does is he actually gives a bunch of people and, and groups and nations money to rebuild their, their cities and their temples. And so Cyrus will actually give the Israelite people money to go back, resettle Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. The story of this is in... Uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But he pays them because he's like, look, Babylon was completely unjust. They stripped you of your dignity, of your thing, of your wealth. So I'm going to actually pay. And, and it's not completely benevolent because he's thinking, well, if they go back home and they rebuild their temple, well, everyone's going to tithe to their temple. And that means we can skim some tax off the top of that. So if we, convince, if we give them money to build up their infrastructure, then we can just get a lot more money off of taxation. So, you know, he's got a strategy in this. But what the point is, is Isaiah is saying, you know what? The kings of Israel failed. 
the people of Israel failed to be the light to the world. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. So they were punished and they were taken off in exile and they suffered greatly under these things. And now, believe it or not, God is going to use as a sort of Messiah, this pagan emperor king who worships a God named Marduk, who is the primary Babylonian God, doesn't even know the one true God, but God is going to use that guy as your savior to settle you back in the land, to give you money to rebuild the temple built to God's honor. He doesn't even realize what he's doing, but he is God's servant. Who's Marmaduke? <laughs> Marduk was a god of Babylon. That, oh, okay, but Cyrus... That Cyrus is... worshipped. Oh, okay, but Cy Cyrus... doesn't know God. He's a pagan. He's an un... Well, he's not a believer in the one true God. Oh, yeah, when Marduk, the king of the whole heaven and earth... Yeah, he's is the Babylonian the god. That's the first line of the t cylinder. The Cyrus cylinder, which I was just reading, so Marduk was fresh in my head. Yeah, dude. But the, the, the comic is, Marmaduke is pretty good Marmaduke. too. I wonder if that's who he's named after. <laughs> I, I wonder if he looked like a giant Great Dane when the Babylonians <laughs> worshipped him. But but no. But ultimately, know. this is the beautiful part about Cyrus is yes. that is that he is the promoter of saying like this is going to go well for us if we actually take care of Israel and send them back to rebuild. Yeah, absolutely. But the irony of it and the painfulness of it is that what it's actually saying is. Israel failed to be what they're supposed to be. So I'm using a pagan emperor to actually do the will. God is saying, I'm going to use this pagan emperor to do my will because Israel couldn't do it. And this pagan emperor is going to be more faithful to what I'm asking. Because I can do what, I mean, the point of this is that God can use whoever he wants to. Right. Whether we like it or not. And the challenge of somebody like Cyrus, who was it, you know, in his own way, I suppose, despite a lot of paganism and all sorts of horrible things in his own way. I mean, he did some decent things, but what it challenges us to do is try to picture the last person in the world that you think God could use. And then imagine God using that person. God uses, it says in the Old Testament that God uses King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the one who actually took them into slavery. He was a terrible figure, but God actually says, I'm going to use him as my instrument of justice to actually punish you, but I'm going to use this guy because nothing is out of the reach of God. Nothing is outside the providence and the realm of God's will. And whatever God wants to do, he's going to use whoever he wants to do. Not in a lack of free will kind of way, but he's going to have his will done. And if Israel fails to do it, then he's going to have somebody else do it. Maybe the enemy of Israel is actually going to do God's will because Israel failed to do that. And again, what it is for the Israelites who are reading this is this challenge, again, to think of who is the last person on earth that you think God could use. Oh, that's the person who he's going to raise up to do his will. Which is beautiful and exciting because there's restoration, but it's also uh, painful for an Israelite to read this and say, wow, all of our kings were unfaithful, so God's going to use Cyrus the Persian. Well, this is the thing that, I mean, uh, it gives principle to Jesus' uh, command to love your enemies and Absolutely to pray right. for your enemies. Because this is the thing is that if you're saying like, I, I'm so disposed to say that the Lord is Lord of all, mm. of the Lord of the living and of the dead. And yes. He, well, he's the Lord of the living, which is... And the dead. And the dead. Um, but this, the thing that's so powerful is to say, if we're willing, then we can say that God can use anything. Absolutely right. Or and, in anyone. And that's why, like, forgiveness, we forgive. We continually forgive. Why? So that we can enter into the work of God that's existing in our lives and in our communities and in our nation and our world. And why do we do any of that? Well, we do all of it because of actually what chapter 45 of Isaiah says later on. Because the, the, the point of what God is trying to do in the world, actually, I want to read this. It's uh, verse 22 of chapter 45. 
He says, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, by my mouth, my mouth has uttered all integrity, a word that will not be revoked. So before me, every knee will bow, including Cyrus, including Pharaoh, including Caesar, including the governments of the world, the modern day, including our president, including the president of all the other countries that we don't like, including North Korea, including Iran, every knee. We don't want to read this in our context, right? Right. Nebuchadnezzar's knees are going to bow. Caesar's knees are going to bow. Kim Jong-un's knees will bow before the Lord because that's who he is. And as hard as that might be to hear those words, that's what the Israelites are being told. That's what this passage says. And so the reason God is using someone like Cyrus is because he wants Cyrus as well. It's not just this utilitarian thing of, oh, I'm going to save Israel through whatever means necessary. Yeah, that's true. But I also want the Persians. I also want the Babylonians. It's funny, I was teaching a class about the Exodus last night. And I think we miss the fact that if you read closely the Exodus story, the reason God performs those 10 plagues or those mighty deeds is because he wants to win the hearts of the Egyptians as well. And in the Exodus story, there's right. a throngs of Egyptians who go across the Red Sea because they're like, no, we want to be a part of this. That's the intent. And Israel gets tripped up. And we do too, thinking that it's all about us. Let's circle the wagons. And that's never been God's intention. If he has to use a pagan emperor like Cyrus to show them that, then he says, so be it. I'll do it. Which is a great segue into the psalm, <laughs> as you pointed out. <laughs> that's, what I, that's, what, that's what I just said. I didn't hear you say it. I don't oh, think you said anything. This is what we call the magic of the podcast. <laughs> the magic of editing. Tell his glory among the nations, among all the peoples, his marvelous deed. I mean, like, this is it. This is exactly the vocation. Yeah, it's like we're singing a new song to the Lord. This is the new song is that we're like, hey, we're going out, everybody. And and if we're going to sing a new song, it's going to be a song that other people can hear. They can understand that it was intelligible to them. Do you know that this was actually the psalm that was chosen to be sung when the Ark of the when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the new tabernacle that David had commissioned. Oh. This is the psalm that they sang because they were like, God is being housed among us. He's living with us. He's he's tabernacling with us. So we should sing this new song. And the irony of it is that, uh, not the irony, but the, the beauty of it being placed here in the readings is showing, well, God has actually tabernacled other places as well. Yes, he has chosen to be present in a physical, tangible way in the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. Yes, absolutely. But he's not limited to that. And we talked about Ezekiel a couple of weeks ago. When they go off into exile, Ezekiel sees this vision of a chariot with, with wheels because God is saying, no, I can come and tabernacle with you even in your exile. I can tabernacle among you wherever you go. I'm not limited to this spot on a hill in Jerusalem. Right. I'm much bigger than that. And yes, I can tabernacle among the Egyptians. I can tabernacle among the Persians and the Babylonians, because I will be with you wherever you go, which is, that's the new song that they're going to be singing. You can sing it to all of you lands and to all of you nations and all of you peoples, because again, that's the vocation is to be the light to the world, to all of them. And declare among the nations, the Lord is King. The the world will (laughs) surely stand fast, never to be shaken. He rules the peoples with fairness that like, God is actually a fair and just King. And he's ever, he's for everybody. Yeah. And if he's for you, who can be against you? Yeah, very good Romans pull. Because God don't make junk. Which, speaking of junk, um, <laughs> Thessalonians is actually a good, they're not junk. You didn't even laugh at that. Uh, there's, <laughs> I, I, there's I was no, like, I was trying to find nothing. what was funny in it. There's not, there's nothing funny. Uh, but Thessalonians is also not funny. <laughs> the letter. Why do I find that funny? I don't know. <laughs> 
I don't know because I kept pushing it. Uh, Sometimes if you just keep pushing, you'll get the laugh. Dude, my 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 parents told me about a thing that they saw when they were uh, younger on TV. I mean, it was like the seventies, and um, they just had a dog licking peanut butter off of its nose. But but like they but they like they endured. They like did like fifteen minutes of just filming this dog licking peanut butter off its nose. <laughs> And they just, it just kept going. It just didn't stop, which is like at first it was like, ha ha. And then it was like they changed the channel and then they came back and then they were like, ha ha. And then they changed the channel and came back and it was still going. And they thought well, it was is, the funniest thing ever. What does that say about network TV in the 70s? I know. That's what I'm saying, dude. This is, it was bold. They were, they were forging new paths. Well, there were only so many options of channels you could change to. <laughs> like, well, they're going to watch the dog licking peanut butter off their nose because like there's nothing else on. Snow or cheese. Snow or cheese. <laughs> or peanut butter. Or peanut butter. Is that a quote from something? Yeah, dude. Come on. European vacation? <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. I didn't see that one coming. Yeah, dude. That's, You've never pulled that one. I have not, man. Come on. I, there, I have I have things that if even in an account of my life that w- w- books would not contain. <laughs> I didn't even think you heard me when I said that earlier. <laughs> you didn't even react. All right. The Thessalonians. Um, the church in Thessalonica, Thessaloniki, uh, or Nica, depending on how you pronounce it, um, it's a, it's a strange thing. This is one of Paul's letters that's um, it's a bit more pastoral than it is theological. Um, we don't know exactly what the circumstances are, but the church in Thessaloniki has been left without leadership. God, Paul had been there. He'd preached the gospel. He had to go. And now they're left without leadership. And there's all sorts of threats of bad teachings coming in. And he's stressed out. And he's like, I really want to return to you. I can't do it. So here's some encouragement. And yeah. a lot of this letter is all about eschatology, the end times. And so it's in this, uh, I think it's in chapter 15, where we get all this talk about the second coming, the resurrection of the body. So there's a lot of actually really beautiful theology embedded into this letter that's to comfort people who are freaking out, right? And I think maybe that's kind of the key. It's a letter that's meant to comfort people who are freaking out because they're scared and they're lonely and they don't know what's going on. So as as he opens the letter, he says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, that's who he's with, to the church church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, remembering you in our prayers, unceasingly calling to mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and your endurance of hope. By the way, it's in the opening section of the letter, Every one of Paul's letters that you can always find his main themes of what he's going to pull out. Uh, did you catch a theological theme that came out right in that opening? Well, let me read that line again. We remember you in our prayers, unceasingly calling to mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and your endurance of hope. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love, which is actually the way he's going to structure the rest of the letter through faith, the uh, the. Uh, the theological virtues, right? See, that's cool. Which so, is kind of cool. It's so he's pastoring them with the theological virtues. That's exactly what he's doing. Uh, before God our Father, we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, how you were chosen. chosen. For our gospel didn't come to you in word alone, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And with much conviction, I was just with you earlier, Not, I couldn't figure out why this fit with the rest of the readings. How does this play with so anything? I, so I, I told Scott, I said, just read it to me, man. Just like, I was like, read me the, read me the reading, which, yeah. y'all, sometimes it actually is so helpful to literally have the words out loud. It's true. And I heard it when I read it out loud, and I hadn't heard it before, and it was the word chosen that's the one that jumped out to me. Because what they're what they're doing is they're stressing out, they're wishing Paul was there. They want their not just their pastor, but they want their founder. They want the one that initially gave them the faith. They want to go back to the good old days when Paul was here, when things made sense, when it was a little bit more comfortable, because now we're freaking out. And what Dude, does Paul say? Golden age thinking versus it, it, golden chain thinking. Yeah, kind of. And Paul says, No, you were chosen. 
And the word of God didn't come to you just in words alone. It wasn't just in my preaching, but it came in power in the Holy Spirit. You are chosen, and you might picture yourself as the last people on earth that God would choose to do this work. Just like Cyrus was the the, last person on earth that God might choose to do that work. Just like us. Just like us, the last people on earth that God God would choose choose to do this work. But somehow we can actually, do you know that we're global, man? It's so weird. That's weird. Think about the fact that you can access our podcast anywhere on the globe. I try not to. It's just uploaded to the internet. But that's what God can do if he wants to. Right. And he can use whoever. And that's really the theme of these readings. Right. God's going to use who he will. And it's usually not going to be the one that you expect him to use. Right. You expect him to use the prophets. You expect him to use the kings. Right. You don't expect him to use the pagan emperors. You don't expect him to use, you know, the, the folks in the pews uh, terrified out of their gourds in Thessaloniki waiting for real leadership. You don't expect him to use the lowly. You don't expect him to use the 13-year-old peasant girl from Nazareth. To be the mother of the Redeemer. I mean, this you never is, expect those. You don't expect this, but I mean, like, it's so cool because we sit at the ground zero of the new evangelization. Yeah, absolutely. Where, um, I'll tell you, I mean, it, there's some been been some pivotal, really important clergy that have taken place, but really, the you new, mean in Colorado, in, in Denver, and Denver. in Colorado, like, but the rea- the reality of it is. Uh, lay people. I mean, like yeah. the 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 truth is, is that who is the Lord decided to raise up? He, you know, he he calls he called me to the priesthood, which I still think is just a funny gig, man. <laughs> I'm just like I'm like I gotta thank you. I thank you for never having revoked that call, even <laughs> though I'm a I'm a bonehead. Not yet. But like this is the thing that is so beautiful is is that in the midst of that, okay, it's cool. But the reality is, is you got a Gusson Institute. You've got Christ in the city. Yeah. You've got. Um, you've got focus, you've got... Um, all of which were founded by lay people. All of these just like profound... Just average folks who were like, we need to do something. The Tim Grays and the Jonathan Reyes's and the the Curtis Martins who said, no, we need to we need to act. Absolutely. And, and even like uh, the smaller ones, like, yeah. you know, One Billion Stories yeah. and Set to More is just coming from the forth from us. And like... Absolutely. And just like beautiful, like uh, how, many, how many campus ministers have we poured out from our ministry? Who are transforming things all over the world? Yeah. You know, like absolutely. How many have we poured out that, that are actually taking leadership and doing mm-hmm. missionary work around the world unhesitatingly and yeah. creating families? It's it's actually it's it's the it's the um it's the local it's the it's the familial church. Yes, that's Which actually is how trans- the church is supposed to operate. Right, and things are just being transformed in the midst of it. It's like we're in the homesteading generation, and so mm-hmm. forming powerful homes in Jesus Christ, the domestic churches. Like this is actually where things are changing, and so I don't know. I, just, I it's, it, the clergy we're 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 cool. And we have a particular role. Absolutely. But, I mean, these things can't happen without the clergy, right? But or else we have no but, sacraments. We have no life. But what's even so powerful is that the Lord says, "No, you know what? I need you all to raise up and to not just put it on your priests." Yes. You need to actually step. Right. And like that's what's so powerful and good, but it's intimidating though too because you're like we always want to shirk duty and put it off onto someone else. And the humility of the priests and bishops who say, "Wow, Curtis Martins and Tim Grays of the world. Yeah, this isn't a diocesan effort, but you've really started something amazing. So we will put diocesan effort into supporting you." Right. Lay people because you've done this. But it does take a certain amount of humility. Well, I'm the priest. I'm the bishop. I should, you know, do this, but to recognize, no, God is moving in a different way, and now our job is to support that. Yeah, and our job is to foster that. Well, and even for the clergy speaking as a priest, yeah, it, the easy thing is look what they're doing. Okay, now I get to just sit on my laurels. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah. but this is the thing is that is that you shall not muzzle an ox as he's treading out grain. Right. 
I don't know what that guy was saying. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely, Father. What the heck? Did, don't that, muzzle the ox. <laughs> don't muzzle the ox, which actually is from, from Timothy when he says uh, that pastors who do a good job should pay, get paid double. I, I wanted to bring that up in our presbytery meeting the other day because I thought that it would. I was like, "Hey, I'm doing a really good job over here. Can you pay me double, know, please?" Anybody read First Timothy. First Timothy. It was actually the reading of the day oh, that Pete's every sake. single priest had, there had to do it, and we were talking about retirement oh, benefits. <laughs> and I just, I just thought it was hilarious. But 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 when it comes down to it, it's like no, we're we're chosen. We are a chosen people, a holy race, yeah. a, a, a priesthood, a priesthood called a to be his set own. apart. Segula. Dude, I, I like I'm like almost getting the quote no, you right. Got it. You and totally you keep nailed it. getting the quote right. No, you nailed it, man. <laughs> but you have actually done a fantastic job of segueing us into the gospel, I think. What what? Don't you think? Dude. I think. Because you talked about priests yeah. and support of religious leaders, money. Um that's all I can think of. And, but and, Her- all there. and Herodians. And, and Herodians. <laughs> Hold on, I didn't I didn't mention. And that. taxes. In taxes. All right, this is one of my favorite passages of the New Testament, and I, it's one of my favorite what? because nobody understands it, which is sounds like a condescending thing to say. And I, I mean, mean, I feel it. I feel like I understand it. Yeah, maybe, but I, I mean, I think yeah, I I'm understand sure on a baseline level. I think there's a few things that people miss. So here's here, there, there, can I can secrets. I give one piece? Yeah. Okay, the Herodians are a people who have allied themselves with Rome and are politically and monetarily dependent upon a, a symbiotic relationship with the occupying force. They're certainly dependent on another Davidic king never coming to power. Right? See, that's why I pay you the big bucks. Is you're taking no, you're taking what I'm saying and taking it to the next level. That, that was you're like absolutely a, right. That was good attentive listening. You took and you added <laughs> and you gave back to me what I said. It's true though. With an extra sauce on it. But the fact, well, some queso. They also hate the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, their stake is set in a Davidic king coming back to power because they hate the status quo, and they know that Rome should not be in charge. And this guy named Herod, who's not even Jewish, should not be ruling over the Jewish people because that's not how God's will was set up. We're supposed to have a kingdom and a Davidic king and a royal priesthood and all these things. Especially since it's the the dynasty should never go away. Exactly the right. The mace will not depart between Judah's legs. So the irony is that these two groups, the Herodians and the Pharisees, who could not stand each other, who couldn't not stand each other more, who hated each other, let's say it that way, yeah. are actually brought together and unified in their hatred of Jesus. Because they're like, this guy is opposing both of our both plans. Both of us. Like, he's, yes. he is an obstacle to, to, to our desire to Absolutely. actually bring the Messiah because he's inviting all of these sinners into the covenantal relationship And he's with saying Rome. that we're wrong. And he's saying that we're wrong and he's trying to usurp our power. And then the Herodians are like, don't like they see him as a revolutionary Absolutely. coming, coming to lead uh, uh, Israel up against Rome. Knocking over the status quo. No, knocking over the status quo, doing judgmental things about yes. the, the temple taxes. So he's judging the temple. He's judging that he, uh, he's taking up a, a, a quorum of 12 to mm. be able to like, he, he's showing this like prowess. He's has disciples. He's doing stuff. They're they're tweaking. They're like oh, everybody's everybody's freaking out because Jesus is powerful in the midst of this. So Jesus is going to choose this opportunity to show their hypocrisy pretty explicitly. Right. And this is one of my favorite scenes. So the Pharisees went off. They plotted how they met entrapped. So Jesus has been. It's after Palm Sunday. We're in between Palm Sunday and uh, and Passover. Right. 
So he's going about in the temple. He's been there. He already overturned the money changers tables. He's already ticked everybody off. He's saying things that are challenging. People are intrigued. The Pharisees are mad. The Herodians are upset. Everybody's frustrated. So the Pharisees go off and they plot how they can entrap him in his speech. And they sent their disciples to him with the Herodians. And if you're a first century Jew and you're reading this, you're like, hold on, what did that say? That must be a typo. Because the Pharisees and the Herodians went because together? Because the, Phari- the Pharisees have been, have been uh, totally honked at the Herodians yeah. because they've just given themselves over, whereas their Absolutely. whole thing is, is like, don't rule over us. Don't Absolutely. tread on me, baby. And they, they went and they said, teacher, we know that you're a truthful man, buttering him up. They don't <laughs> think he's a truthful <laughs> man. And that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Baloney, you don't think that. And you're not concerned with anyone's opinion, which actually <laughs> does <laughs> tick us off because you wish that we wish that you would care about our opinion. Right. And you don't regard a person's status. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it lawful to pay the census tax to Caesar or not? At which point, no. Peter cut off the high priest's uh, <laughs> servant's ear. Head. Um, oh. Neither of those things. I know. <laughs> of those things okay, here's what we need to know, and here's the secret embedded thing that we don't see. Uh, just before this, Jesus had that big scene of overturning the money changers' tables, right? And the seats of those who bought and sold pigeons. The whole cleansing of the temple deal, right? Yep. Um, just a quick word about why he overturned the money changers' tables. We, we, we think sometimes that that scene, the cleansing of the temple, is about Jesus being ticked off that there's commerce in the temple. Jesus isn't ticked off. He's ticked off that we're misusing commerce and that there's exploitation. There's all sorts of corruption going on. Right. But the very fact that there were animals being sold and coins being traded, I don't think is objectively bad. So two things on this. I don't right. know if we've ever talked about this. Yes. Um, to offer an animal and sacrifice in the temple, what state did that animal have to be in? Good, excellent, pristine. Yeah, pristine, free of blemish, not scarred or marked or dirty or anything else. So if you're going to travel up to Jerusalem to offer your sacrifice or have the priest offer your sacrifice and you're traveling from you know, Caesarea or something like or that. Timbuktu or, or something. Or Timbuktu, whatever. It's a long journey. It's difficult. It's arduous. It's dirty. Your animals that are pristine maybe when you left home are not going to look very good when you get to Jerusalem. No, because you're sleeping in dirt. Yeah. So they say, well, why don't we have the people buy the animals here? Because it's it's not just our idea. The Old Testament says explicitly they have to be free of blemish. Right. There ain't no way people can keep their animals free of blemish. So buy them here. But to buy them... Which, which just by the way, Bethlehem is just south of Jerusalem, mm-hmm. which where they would actually have uh, the best shepherds because they would, mm. the shepherds of Bethlehem were the ones who could actually keep right. a, an animal pristine. So right. they, so they would sleep day and night with their animals, and they probably fed the business in Jerusalem, right? Most Cause, likely, because that's, that's how they, that's how they rolled. Okay, so to buy these animals, you need money. But here's the problem with money: in the temple priest, so. On what what kind of money did they use in Israel? Well, this is the thing: is that they're occupied by uh, they're occupied by Rome, so they would be using Roman coinage. Roman coins. Now, one of the other laws in the Old Testament says you are not to bring any graven images into the temple. No idolatry is permitted within the temple precincts. Now, Caesar is the son of God. God. He himself is considered, yeah, he's the son of God, he's considered a God. All of the currency had Caesar's face on it, which meant to bring Roman currency into the temple precincts, that's committing idolatry. So what do they do? Well, there was a place called Tyre, T-Y-R-E, Tyre and Sidon, their neighboring towns. Tyre had its own currency. Yeah, uh, along the coast. Tyre had its own currency. They were called Tyre's shekels. And it was the only currency in that part of the world that actually had no imagery on it. They were just flat disks. And so the good sense in Jerusalem said, well, let's bring in tyrant shekels. We'll have people trade in their Roman currency for tyrant shekels. Then they can go into the temple precincts. They can buy and sell their animals and we won't be committing idolatry. We won't be bringing graven images in. Because you can't bring those coins. Okay. If you know that, 
changes the story. Where is Jesus when all this is taking place? He's in the courts of the Gentiles. He's in the temple, right? Oh, within the temple precincts. Oh, oh n- not, not the cleansing of the temple. No, no, not the t- this moment here. Right, He's right. in the temple courts. Right. And he says to the leadership, the Pharisees. Remember, they're like, show me graven image. Show me one of your coins really quick. And they're like, oh, let me pull one. Whoops. And all of the people are like, oh. I mean, we, we totally read something else in this story. We miss the first century joke that everyone's like, Oh, the Pharisees have coins in the temple. You can't do that. They've just pulled out their little graven images, like you said. So before he says anything else, he's already won the argument because they've shown their hypocrisy by pulling out this little image with Caesar. They can't even follow the rules that they're trying to impose on the people because of their own hypocrisy. So Jesus calls him out. He's like, hey, whose face is that, by the way? Oh, it's the pagan god Caesar. And it's already in their hand. They're like, shoot, now what do we do? And then the next thing that I think confuses people, um, show me the coin that pays the census tax. They handed him the Roman coin. And he said, whose image and whose inscription? They said, Caesar's. <laughs> you know, I wonder how they said that. <laughs> yeah, it's Caesar's. And then he said to them, then repay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. And Anne Wagner was telling me this came up in a Bible study of hers just yesterday, I think. Pay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. I think we have our minds totally twisted on this because we want to create this false dichotomy here and say, well, that means Jesus is saying we should give to our political leaders our political lives and our you know, economic lives and that stuff. And we're to give God our religious lives and our spiritual lives. But that's not at all what he's saying. No. What belongs to God? He says, give to God what belongs to God. What belongs to God? Everything. Everything. Our politics, our economics, our money, our families, our jobs, our social lives, our spiritual lives. All of it belongs to God. What belongs to Caesar that does not belong to God? Nothing. Not even that coin. Even that is God's. There is no, what he's trying to say, I think, is that there's no part of your lives that does not belong to God. Not this coin, not your allegiances, not your your Herodians and your, your political alliances with Rome, not you Pharisees and your aspirations toward political power. None of it trumps what is given to God alone. Even, and it goes back to that quote from Isaiah, every knee shall bow, everything shall be given back to God. Whether we like it or not, one way or another, he will assume all of it because he is God. Mm. Our coins, our lives, our jobs, our careers, our money, our family, everything, our leaders, Caesar himself, every knee shall bow before the Lord God. Mm. That's what he's saying. Yes, He's like, even your hypocrisy, you will have to submit before the Lord. Even this coin that you've falsely, hypocritically put in your pocket, even though you've commanded everybody else not to do that, even that you will have to submit to God himself. And what he's showing is himself being the unlikely chosen one. The one who, the only thing everyone can agree on about Jesus is how they all hate him. Right. And he's saying, well, guess what? Every knee is going to bow before me. He doesn't say it explicitly there, but that's what he's getting at. Yeah. All of it belongs to me. The one that you all hate, the one that you're all threatened by, the one that the prostitutes and tax collectors are following that you want nothing to do with but cast out. That's the one who God has chosen. Yeah, I mean, they're coming at him so hard. I mean, like after this, they're going to ask about they're going to ask about resurrection, and Jesus is just like, "You're wrong because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God." Like he just (laughs) choose one. Yeah, he's like he's just (laughs) choose one, and they're like, ah, they're like, we got to kill this guy, man. Yeah. Because it's it's just not it's not working out because he is distasteful to us. But that's where it's it's like when we are called 
we're like, that's actually what we step into Mm -hmm. is, is that Jesus is, it says, we really have a higher call. This everything is the Lord's. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Everything will return to me and come to me. So make me known. Because every because you you are all the Lord's and as long as you resist this, I mean, my dad would always say, You have two you have two choices. You can either suffer avoiding the will of God or suffer doing Following doing the will, the will of God. Of God. Yep. Exactly. So it's like it's like that that's where we see, you know, like uh, you know, but when we see Cyrus and he does the will of God, even though he's in an unexpected way, it's right. super powerful and beautiful. When we see, when we s- sing the new song of the Lord and actually like proclaim his name to the nations, then people go like, oh, that makes sense of what I'm doing. It's it's like, it's like so much of Buddha, like Buddhism, man, it makes, Jesus Christ makes sense of Buddhism. He does. Like Jesus makes, Jesus yes. Christ makes sense of, of Taoism. Yes. It makes, it makes sense. The seeds of the Holy Spirit are prepared, or have been planted into all cultures and right. all civilizations and fostered sometimes better, sometimes worse, right. but that, that everything can lead to him. And so that, that's why mm. we're meant to go out and to proclaim him. But because of it, we will find ourselves in this weird middle land between those who are longing for worldly earthly power and finances and wealth and for those who are arrogant and think that they have some sort of um solid claim that it's all it's my way or the highway and but yet it's hypocritical and and so it's like how do we how do we as the people of god go out and do this it's like we just have to make this choice continuously to to join ourselves into you know he says blessed are you when they persecute you and utter ever kind of falsehood against you because of me because Yo, I did this. The image I keep having in my mind that keeps popping back up is um, when he says, show me your coins. Like, I'm hearing, like, show me your cards. You've got, we've all got this stuff. We've all got our prejudices. Mm. We've all got our fears. We've well all said. got the crap that we pull out. Right. Or that we, that we carry around. And he's like, just show me the coin. What do you got? What are you hiding? Mm. What is your hypocrisy? What is the thing that's angering you? What is the thing you're struggling with? Show me your coin. Give it to me. Be and honest. they hand him the coin. Here is our idolatry. Here is our hypocrisy. They're not happy about it, but the imagery of here is our hypocrisy, we're handing it over to Jesus. I think that's the call. That That's, again, I can't get the image out of my mind. It's God saying to all of us, give me your coin, <laughs> show me, and hand it over because God has chosen me and he's chosen you. So as it, likely as you may be, but you need to hand over that stuff first. Yeah. So you, what you're saying is that Jesus says to me, show me the money. Show me the money. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and on that happy note, <laughs> we'll call it a day. Dude, well, I'm happy to be your ambassador of Quan. Uh, well, well played. Hey. God bless you all. <laughs> okay. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. The Word in the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.lankyguys.org. See you next week.